You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. What is it about feeling uncomfortable that is now unacceptable? Call your boyfriend. Let's split a cab and take these drugs and see what happens. People think the world revolves around them, and it doesn't. Always carry emergency cocaine. I mean, in case of emergency, break glass. Hello. Hello. Hey. And welcome to Pop Tarts. Me, 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 me. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And I'm so excited about today's guest. Judy Gold is such an important person to me in pop culture because I am a large Jewish lady. And as a legendary stand-up comedian, she has been telling jokes about being a very tall Jewish lady on TV for the past 30 years. And I really, really relate to her and her jokes. She has won two daytime Emmys for her work as a writer and producer on The Rosie O'Donnell Show. She's had stand-up specials on HBO, Comedy Central, and Logo, and she's had two hit off-Broadway shows. Judy is currently the host of the podcast Kill Me Now, and her new book, Yes, I Can Say That, When They Come for the Comedians, We Are All in Trouble, comes out July 28th. Welcome, Judy Gold! Thank you! Thanks for having me! Yay! As I just said, I've been a fan of your Jewish jokes since I was a teenager in the 90s, but I also remember you. So old. (laughs) I remember you as one of the very first comedians I ever saw on TV talking about being a lesbian. Like years before Ellen DeGeneres came out in 97. I remember Rosie O'Donnell came out in 2002. You were on Comedy Central. You were talking about your partner, Schwendy, and your two (laughs) kids. Yeah. And it, it was in... In that way, I've always really seen you as a, a true pioneer who was like l- making it really tangible to people what a gay household looked like way yeah. before gay marriage was even a twinkle in anyone's eye. Yeah. Um, what was it like in the beginning well, to be such a pioneer? I can't say I was definitely not the first. I mean, there were so many before me. My, Robin Tyler was really the first. She started in the 70s. And then you know, Leah Delaria and Suzanne Westenhofer and then Bob Smith and Frank Maya and all these people were out on stage, but I really came out as a gay parent. You know, once I had kids, uh, I started talking about my family on stage, like every comic does. And, you know, I sort of normalized this, our family because Here's the deal. You know, people, you know, I would say there was so much material because we are same sex parents. The crap people would say to us. It was just ridiculous. And what kind of message is it to my kids if I don't talk about them on stage? You know, it's like we don't talk about, you know, they're like we're ashamed. I wasn't ashamed. And so uh, after about a minute or two, people in the audience would just forget this was a, a family with same sex parents. And think of it as just a family, which was, which is the power of comedy. But I couldn't, I couldn't not be out and especially, you know, having children. I thought it was really important. 
Your book is a collection of essays that examines the history of comedians challenging power, while also warning readers of the ways in which censorship and cancel culture and comedy are indicators of a broader, more sort of repressive society on the horizon. You wrote, I always, one of the things that I jotted down that you wrote because it resonated me was I always associated censorship as the hobby of right-wing religious fanatics. So it is confusing to be encountering so much cancel culture from the left. I think this is so important to point out because for lefty liberals like me, I'm finding it harder to navigate what reactions of mine are just having opinions about why assholes are assholes and what reactions are actually bordering on censorship. Right. Um, You were, you were really um, very clear on this point when you were writing about Louis CK and how what he did was terrible, but does it mean that he should never grace a stage ever again? I personally feel like Louis CK shouldn't just drop in at comedy clubs unannounced because I feel like people should, should know what they're going to get. Right. Yeah. If they want it, they should be able to decide if they want to be in a Louis CK audience or not. I'm also, I'm bummed out that Dave Chappelle, whose work I love, 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 just seems to really be into targeting trans women for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I don't get it. I don't want to censor them, but I also feel weird not saying something when I think it's fucked up. Tell me how to defend free speech while also reserving my right to critique, because I find it very confusing. Well, I think, um, and I love what you just said, that you know, the fact that you're questioning your reaction um, instead of realizing, you know, look, being offended is a choice, I, I believe. I believe that, you know, but th- we also have a choice to not put ourselves in that situation. You know, to, there's a there's a putting yourself, not putting yourself in the situation, and then they're saying that situation will should never exist because I don't want to be in it. That's not fair. The world doesn't revolve around you. Look, you know, if you don't like a comic or you don't like what they did in their personal life, then don't go see them. Then change the channel. Um, You're entitled to have an opinion. I mean, it's a sense of humor. People laugh at different things. But this idea that you can't ever be uncomfortable or that if you're triggered by something, it's the other person's responsibility uh, it, this, it, it's, I think it's really, it's killing comedy. It, it's, and, and comedy is so powerful. I mean, I, I try to, I hope I, in the book, I hope that I, it came across that how important satire and comedy is to healing, to educating people, um, to free speech and truth telling. We tell the truth. You know, that's why they wanted Lenny Bruce gone, because he was talking about the Vietnam War and because he was talking about segregation, not because he was cursing. It, it was yeah. it was a way, and comedians were the first to start talking about what was going on in Germany, uh, in c- German comedians. And, you know, to, to shut us down, I mean, you look at this horrible excuse for a human being who can't even sit through the White House Correspondence Center because he can't take a fucking joke, you know? It, and so because you can't take a joke, we should not have a comic there. We should cancel SNL. We should 
not have a comic hosting the Emmys or the Oscars. I mean, no, absolutely. No, it, it take responsibility. I feel like we've coddled people too much. And this idea that everyone gets, everyone gets a trophy. You know what? That's not how life works. Everyone doesn't get a trophy. You, you gotta learn, you gotta build your character. You gotta realize that being uncomfortable and being triggered, I get triggered when the alarm goes off in the morning. We're all triggered. <laughs> I think there's also a difference with intent, like hate speech yes. versus a joke where you're trying to get to a, a larger point versus right. trying to be a racist, hateful asshole or right. sexist motherfucker, there's intent. And right. some jokes yeah. aren't funny, but then you just don't laugh. Right. But also, if you're going to talk about something, you know, a subversive topic or have a, you know, a controversial opinion, you better write a fucking funny joke. Yeah, that, that's, you know, but also you're right. No one takes into consideration the intent of the comic, the context, the nuance. Um, it's whatever you think it is. That's what it is. And you're going to, you know, you're going to shut shut this person down if it offends you. No. I'm glad that you brought up. Um, people getting triggered from what I gathered in your book a lot of the censorship comes in when venues especially colleges which are a big part of how comedians make their living become hyper vigilant about their audiences getting triggered you wrote trigger has spun out of control and no longer protects those who actually need it remember when people ignored little things that made them uncomfortable you also wrote that more and more comedians are just refusing to perform at colleges, which is, you know, a shame for right. young people coming up. Why have people become so uncomfortable with just being uncomfortable? And how have you been navigating this new landscape personally as a, a comedian for 30 years? I, you know, it's been more than 30 years, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> it's been, you know, it's been almost, you know, I did my first set in 1981. Um, oh my God. So much when I was in college. Yeah. But no, no. Well, because of, I don't want to age well. Yet. Yeah. No, I'm old. I'm 57. <laughs> uh, I was 19. But, um, you know, that is the question. What is it about feeling uncomfortable that is now unacceptable? You know, I have a thick skin because I was bullied. You know, there, there's many reasons, but I was humiliated. I, you know, and that's, that made me me, but you can't protect people. You can't protect your children um, from the real world because then we all are like, no, you can't say that. You can't say that. Yes, you can. You can say it and you don't have to listen or you can leave the room. But to say that, you know, if that makes me uncomfortable, it's wrong. It's like the work. It's I, I. All right. If I got to a club, and uh, on the way to the club, I got in like a minor traffic accident, right? And I get on stage. I'm like, oh my god, I just got in a car accident. Blah. You know, I'm doing my riffing, whatever. You know. And someone in the audience just lost someone close to them in a car accident two weeks ago, and they're like, I'm triggered. You know, that's not my fault. You no, know, no. Uh, my I went up there to tell you what happened to me. It's not about you. Like people think the world revolves around them and it doesn't. I mean, I wish it did. I wish it revolved around me. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, the car accident example is is very clear that like you can't protect people from being triggered by a car accident joke. Right. But then 
there are other things where it's intuitive that if people are sensitive in that way generally, if you're going to tell a joke that uses the N-word and you are not a person of color, if you're dropping the C-bomb on women, if you're telling Holocaust jokes, rape jokes, abortion jokes, AIDS jokes, jokes about trans people right now are very tricky. I'm sure you've heard them all. Like in what, one of the examples you gave in your book is when you say that you were writing, a, you wrote about dressing up as a T-cell for a, a parade in P-Town. Right. For people who don't know what that is, it's, it's you know, you, if you have HIV AIDS, you want your T-cell count to be high. Right. So like the, that was the, it to, told you how many, how bad your viral load was. So, so you wrote that people who lived through the AIDS crisis liked your AIDS jokes, but young people were appalled. Right. I'm, I'm just wondering if that's true about all of these topics that I just mentioned that people who are not actually the people that we're trying to protect the most with trigger warnings probably are going to be possibly the most receptive to the joke, or is that an oversimplification? No, I think you're right. I think, you know, it's also education. When I do, when I do a joke, I, I have a joke. Um, I have a couple of Holocaust related jokes in my act. Um, one of my oldest jokes and one of my favorite jokes is, uh, when I about when I visited the Anne Frank house and and it's about the joke is about how you know my family never would have survived because my mother would never be able to keep her mouth shut for the entire <laughs> afternoon right and I act this whole thing out now that joke is about my mother it's not about the Holocaust right, right? Um, mm -hmm. and yet other people, oh no, you know, and, and these are, and I'm a Jew and you know, my, my father was in world war two and I know so, and so many children of Holocaust survivors think that joke is hilarious. And yet the people on the periphery, the people who don't know, who are not educated are offended. It's as if the, the more ignorant you are, the more offended you get. Now I have another joke. I did this joke in Sweden um, where the Holocaust is not funny at all, but, um, I have a joke about my son wanting to get a tattoo and, uh, and it, I don't know if it's in the book, but that he, I said, you're not getting a tattoo. And we got in a fight and, uh, he's, I said, all right, what are you going to get? And he said, I want to get something that says I'm from New York. So I was thinking of getting our zip code 10025 tattooed on my arm. And I said, Henry, you're a Jew. You're not getting numbers tattooed on your arm. Oh my God. And someone came up to me and is like, you know, I really thought that was inappropriate. And I was like, you know what? And this is true. I get on stage every night and bring up the Holocaust every night. And it is a funny joke. It is true. It's yeah. true. It's the truth. And you know, I'm not going to shy away because you're offended. And he, he actually changed his mind. You know, there are so many kids who know nothing about, just like we, you know, we weren't taught about racism um, when we were growing up. Well, they don't teach the Holocaust in, in yeah, about 44 states. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I talk about that, I bring it up. Um, to me is, is, um, is, is remembering. I'm not, I'm not changing what happened in history. 
I'm not, I'm not minimizing it. People got numbers tattooed on their arms, you know? So it, you know, people, it's, it's, it's about taking things personally, but it's also about not being ignorant. You know, I don't, there's also the, you know, I talk about stereotypes in the book as well. And they didn't come out in thin air. They, they came from something. And if you're going to use a stereotype, you know, then you better use it well and personalize it. You know, I got so much crap from the Jewish press when um, I did my first Tonight Show with Jay Leno and I was doing my mother. I played this answering machine message and I was imitating my mother. And the Jew, someone from the Jewish Daily Forward was, you know, you're, you're promoting a stereotype type. I'm like, I'm doing my mother. I'm literally <laughs> saying what she says, how she says it. I'm that's it. I'm talking about my Jewish mother while you're sitting on the Upper West Side, you know, to, I'm traveling around the country talking about my Jewish mother. Um, and if you're uncomfortable with that, that's your problem. Yeah. I, I'm someone who, one of my earliest childhood memories as a toddler was my dad taking me to the MoMA for like a three hour Holocaust documentary. It was like the sorrow and the pity or something. And like, on like 35 millimeter, like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I can, I have no memory of not knowing what the Holocaust same, is. It is same. so embedded in my entire culture of growing up. And I thought that both of the Holocaust jokes that you mentioned were funny. And I, I'm curious because I know that there are audiences younger than I am because they didn't grow up with Jewish parents who were so obsessed with the Holocaust. Like they don't have the kind of, I don't know if the word is, I don't think you can have a thick skin with the Holocaust so or, much, or comfort, but I mean, or comfort talking about it or, you know, like, I can talk about the Holocaust the way I can talk about matzo balls because they are, that is, they are, they are a part of your as, life, right? They're a regular part of my culture, my history, and my life that I cannot imagine, like not hearing, like elderly Jews talking about the Holocaust constantly. Right. And so to hear, you know, your funny takes on it is is refreshing and it's smart. And I wonder if the people who are are coming down on you, if if they're just possibly. It from a younger generation that just doesn't yeah, have the comfort that people have who grew up with right. it like around them constantly. You know, I do see that when I go to the clubs and I mention the Holocaust, or I'll, someone will be from like Germany in the in the audience. I'll be like, "Oh, really?" You know, and I, and I'll go off on them and and it'll be like, "Oh my god!" And it's like, no, no, we have to talk about this because otherwise it's going to happen again. And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it's the same thing when I was on the tennis court and someone said to me, you know, what are you going to dress? It's, it's the eighties. That was the theme of the parade, the eighties. I said, oh, I'm going to dress up as a T cell. And he's, we laughed, but he told his friends and the, the young people, you know, because I went through, my mother used to say this thing. If we weren't laughing, we'd be crying, you know, and that is really what it's all about. And isn't that really the function of hot button jokes, generally speaking, if the comedian is skilled, if you can get past getting triggered, those, the function of hot button jokes help us to cope. 
in yeah. ways that just like sitting in a support group doesn't do. Right. I had a friend that got really mad at me because I would always, there's two times I got roofied and each time I didn't uh, get raped because I was doing cocaine. So <laughs> this was like years ago. And this was like my go-to jokes about roofies was like, check your drinks. If you think you got roofied, do a bunch of cocaine. It's obviously not the safe way to deal with being roofied. Right, right, right. But I was trying to bring awareness to how to check your drinks, how to watch your drinks. And my friend was like, you know, I got roofied and I was on cocaine and still got raped. And I was like, I'm not saying that's the like. It's the not about not, that. Like, that's, I wasn't being I know. literal. Right. That they take what they, whatever they they take out of it is what that's that's not your intent. That's not taking into consideration your intent. That is a that is that true? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad people didn't get roofied in my generation. Oh yeah. First time I got roofied, it was a coke dealer. We were playing chess, and then I woke up and was able to get out of the house. And the second time. I was with uh, a friend and we were drinking, she was drinking white wine and she was like, what the fuck is in my glass? And I was like, you got roofied. Call your boyfriend. Let's split a cab and take these drugs and see what happens. So I roofied myself the second time. Right. But I got home and just ate the best steak and cheese of my life and woke up like only remembering the steak and cheese. And then I was like, how did I get this steak and cheese? And I remember the next day I woke up and I was at work and I was just thinking about that steak and cheese over and over again. It was my favorite steak and cheese in New York after that. And you did not get assaulted. Did not get, yeah, just got roofied. But because we were aware, we looked in the glass, you know, the glass had a ton of sediment and she was like, what the fuck is this? So as, as Judy asked, did you, were you really, when you said take cocaine, if you were, got if you get roofied is that were you actually taking cocaine or is it just a joke i mean i was actually doing cocaine at the time i was in my 20s <laughs> of course i was it, the cocaine just probably helped me wake up that one time with the coke dealer but i don't think it would i wouldn't use it as like always carry emergency cocaine <laughs> i mean in case of emergency break glass yeah i don't think it's like a safe go-to <laughs> okay so uh judy something that you wrote was that you said on stage male comics got away with degrading women and female comics tended to be self-deprecating in order to disarm the audience before they hand it right back to the men i know you're glad times have changed all i can say is hashtag me too i want to know if times have really changed and what specifically you're talking about when you say hashtag me too are you talking about specific instances in your life uh i'm talking about well it's a double entendre you know hashtag me too like i am saying i'm glad that it happened and we have a movement now hashtag me too um but it is true and it and it and it tends to still be true that women notoriously now you look at jean carroll who was a comic in the late fifties, early sixties, who was really one of the first ever true stand-up comics. And they called her, they, they, they called her like a guy comic. Like they said, you're like a, a male, com-, cause she just did straight stand-up. But 
even she would get on stage and basically talk about, you know, we, we all had to acknowledge, hi, I'm a woman. Yeah, I know I should be doing this. I should be doing, you know, she would say, you know, I should be, I know I should be home with my husband. I hate my kid and blah, 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 blah. And then go into her act. It was as if to say, yeah, I know I'm a piece of shit to you, but, um, so uh, we'll get that out of the way. And, and then I can, you know, move on with my act. But men have never had to do that. Uh, right. You know, it's as if if you have any sort of obvious physical trait that is like me, like you talked about being a big Jewish woman, you know, I'm 6'2". And, you know, the, I know that the first thing people thought when I got on stage, especially following a short guy, you know, who's bringing me up, was, oh my God, this woman is gigantic. And I had to acknowledge it so they would stop thinking, of, you know, yeah, I know I'm big. Yeah, everyone thinks I'm a transvestite. I used to say that everyone because everyone did think I was a transvestite. And we used the word transvestite then. Um, and, you know, I would get the elephant out of the room. Um, acknowledge it and move on. Men have not had to do that. And... Yeah. There's such a double standard for what, what you know, what women uh, can say on stage and, and even what we used to wear. Like if you look at, you know, the 80s and 90s, it's we're all it's so androgynous. It's uh, it's just recently where women are getting dressed up, you know, in in provocative outfits because there's a lot of blazers in front of brick walls. Yeah. With, with shoulder pads. Right. And it was because we just wanted you to listen to us. And now it's this new generation. They're, 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 they're objectifying themselves. They're, they're owning that, that their sexuality. Um, and it's, you know, we didn't get dressed up because the guys wouldn't take us seriously and the women would hate us. I mean, not me, but you know, the, the, the attractive, you know, Femi, um, and, you know, it's funny because the worst audience members are people on first dates, hetero, oh. hetero people on first dates, because, you know, they are sitting there so self-conscious. Oh, what if he, he laughs at that? And, she, you know, it that is the worst. When they're in the front, I have to torture them. Um, <laughs> and that, is, and that, that does only apply to heterosexual cisgender couples um that that they are on a first date it is notoriously horrible oh man <laughs> all right so judy maybe this is just me being oversensitive but i saw in a clip from years ago i was just like brushing up on your stand-up and i saw you do a set where Colin Quinn introduced you and he cupped your boob yeah. on the stage and you just kind of went with it. You were very good natured about it, but I didn't love seeing that. Like how much do you, like, I can tell that you guys are probably friends and it's probably fine with you, but it bummed me out. How much of that shit do women have to just take to make it as far as you have in the industry? Um, You know, that's such so funny because it, it was a joke between me and Colin, you know, uh, uh -huh. that the boob thing. Um, and 
it was like a private little joke we had. Uh, and I, as a lesbian, so he, I had a different experience because I never fucked anyone to get ahead, you know, or get spots. I never, uh, all I wanted to do was be a great standup. And I would go to my gigs and, and go to the clubs and just work at my act. And so I sort of became one of the guys, you know, in a way that like, I, I hadn't, I didn't want anything from them. I just wanted to be a great comic. And I think I earned their respect. But that being said, if I, you know, it's all coming to a head now, but I cannot tell you the things I've heard about women, the things, you know, that I just, I would always give it back to them. Like you're an asshole, whatever, misogynist. Um, But it is incredible, the amount of misogyny in this country. I, I mean, I know we're dealing with racism right now and it's coming to a head and deservedly so. I mean it really needs to but we also need to deal with the fact that we treat women like shit in this country um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that the fact that we haven't even had a female vice president um nothing nothing the and it, it's 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 more misogynistic than other, you know, we talk about other countries, you know, and it's, it's, it, it's even more in a way because it's so, it's so evil the way it's done. And like, don't tell me what to do with my body. These white guys telling me what I can do with my, you know, I mean, it, it is, it is mind boggling that we think Mm -hmm. that we are, you know, this, you know, free and it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I was talking to someone about, did you see, um, Chappelle did the, did a little set, uh, after George short, right. Mm -hmm. He's calling Candace Owen a cunt and her pussy and this and that, but he calls George Zimmerman a guy. Right. And, There aren't the the fact that there aren't even words. You know the words they have for women. There there's no comparable words for men. There aren't. They're not even in the English language. Yeah. Um. It's yeah. It it's awful. It's really it's very upsetting. Yeah. And we've come. I mean, it goes- female comics have come a long way, but until. There are no shows, you know, when I started a, a show, and this still happens, a show with three guys, a comedy show with three guys is a comedy show. Uh, a comedy show with three women is- it's a women's comedy show. Yeah, it's Ladies Night Out, Hysterical, um, he, um, Stiletto, you know, it's it's all, it's a special event. And when it stops being, when, when three black comics are on a show, it's an urban show. Um, it, it's when we stop this uh, and three women just becomes a show. I mean, maybe, 
that's a sign, but they still do it. And my friends still do it, but they know that I won't do it. They know that I, I won't participate. Um, well, I, I'm glad that it's kind of better. I'm sad that it's not more better. But it's, you know, I know, but it, I mean, look, it's the same. Like I talk about Joan Rivers in the book and you, you really see in her five decades, you see where women stood by the material she was doing, you know, during those, those decades. I mean, she was the first to talk about, you know, plastic surgery, boobs, divorce, um, you know, you know, her stuff was so brilliant. Um, and yet she, till the end, even in death, they, they didn't light the lights for her on Broadway until we all petitioned, you know, we all complained and petitioned for that. Um, she wasn't in the in memoriam, uh, for the Oscars when she had, and it, it, it's just, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. She was such a pioneer. And oh, it, beyond. I, I agree that she was completely overlooked in in terms of people acknowledging what a loss we experienced as a culture Yeah, when she died. Um, I know that in your previous book, 25 Questions for a Jewish Mother, you interviewed 50 Jewish mothers. And <laughs> I was wondering if I could get your take on my Jewish mother, because uh-huh. I think she's really an outlier in so many ways. Like when you talk about your mom, that is like the archetype of the Jewish mom. But growing up, my brother and I, like the polite way to say it is that we were free range kids. (laughs) My mom and my dad were both always at work in separate careers. And um, my mom was very brilliant, very ambitious. And so for years, we were pretty much unsupervised outside of school. And when I first moved to New York in my 20s, I was homesick. And for a few weeks, I called home every day. But, you know, after like a couple of weeks of that, my mom like gently but firmly let me know that I was being disruptive (laughs) and that I should should only call on Sundays. So for the last 20 years, I have spoken to my mom only on Sunday unless it's like unless I'm literally in the hospital. Okay, you need to get her DNA done because that is not normal. (laughs) I know that she loves me. I know that she takes, she's got nachas for my accomplishments, but she definitely, she's an ambitious woman out there living her own life. And she's just never been enmeshed with her kids. Like for all the women that you interviewed, have you ever encountered a Jewish mom like mine? Like I took a DNA test to make sure that I like, (laughs) to make sure, but yeah, all Jewish, both sides. You know, it's funny because, uh, what the first question we asked, but first of all, I have two things to say. When I went away to college, um, and I went to Rutgers and it was 30, 40 minutes from where I grew up. And my mother said, cause I really didn't want to go to Rutgers. I wanted to go to Emerson and they didn't let me because Rutgers was, that's where I went. Oh my God. I wanted to go there so bad. And they wouldn't let me because oh. Rutgers was $2,500 a semester. Cause when I went mm. anyway, um, lucky you. So she told me, and we didn't have phones. There was two phones on the floor of the dorm, one on one end of the floor. And, and you know, you had to like stand online and wait to make a phone call. Um, but we, she said, we will talk once a week. And you, I, even though you're close, I want you to have your college experience. So it doesn't matter how close we are. You're there. 
and we're here. So I, I kind of respected that. Uh, and she was right. Uh, but after that, you know, I've, I spoke to her pretty much every single day. Um, I talked to my kids multiple times a day. My girlfriend is like, you're out of your mind. Um, and we are very enmeshed, but the thing, when we asked these women, the first question was what makes a Jewish mother different from a non-Jewish mother? Uh-huh. And one, the first woman we interviewed said, we love our children more. Oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh my God. God, this is going to be, this is going to be tough. <laughs> um, oh, shots fired. Yeah. But it's like, look, you, everyone's different. And I mean, can I ask how your old your mother is? Yes, she is 73. Okay, so she's, you know, she's young. Um, <laughs> you know, my mother, my mother would be 98. Mm. Um, my father would be 104. Um, wow. So, look, your mother grew up in a time where women were, were having careers. And, you know, was her mother like that? Um, you know, I don't know how, how often they spoke on the phone, but I'm sure that however much it was that my mom would have dictated that to her own right. mom. My, her mother was more tr of a traditional Jewish mother right. from what I understand. Yeah. My, from my, what I observe. My mother spoke to her mother every day. I spoke to my mother every day. My kids speak to me every, every day. I, 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 I know. And I know it's mental. I know it. And people think it's mental. Like my neighbors in New York, Bruce and Basha, they, um, their kids grew up next door and they both moved to Canada and, you know, we'll be at the elevator talking and she'll be like, Oh, I haven't heard from Chris in a couple of weeks or three weeks. I don't know. I'm like, what, what do you mean? You haven't heard from him in three weeks. Like that's, that's a long time. Right. But they're like, Oh, he's fine. You know, I'm like, no, <laughs> it's I weird. Think that comes from, I mean, look, we have been kicked out of every country. We have, you, you know, we've been at home and people have knocked on the door and said, get out. We've, the shit we have been through, you think that doesn't trickle down from generation to generation? I mean, that's where that overbearing, you know, Jewish mother comes from, not knowing if they're ever going to see their kid again. Right. I don't know if it has to do with the Holocaust. I know that my dad is much more entrenched in the Holocaust as like something that he thinks about every single day, much more than my mom. Yeah. But he doesn't love the phone either. So I don't know. What is that? that? Do you like the phone? I don't mind the phone. What? And you have I'm, a brother? I have a brother. And same thing once a week? I think so. <laughs> that is so not normal. And then how often do you see them? Well, unfortunately, like this is kind of flipping me out. Like my partner had shoulder surgery. Yeah. And so for a while I couldn't travel. And so at this point I haven't actually been in the same room with them in two years. No! And, like, and so when I like talk to them, like I try not to make, 
I try not to let them know that I'm crying because I miss them so oh. much. But like, but like when I when I had to miss Thanksgiving for the first time in like my whole life this last year because of my partner's shoulder, I was I have to say I was a little disappointed with how okay they were with it. No way. Like my mom was like, "That's fine. No, do it. Do whatever you have to do. It's no fine. way. I, like, I know." And I was like, "Where did they live? They live in Virginia, and wow. I live in New York City. Wow. Yeah, that's unbelievable." Like literally the first thing that I want to do when, when social distancing is over is like go to them and like see them and hug them and, and kiss them. But like, I don't know if that's the same on there. I mean, maybe it is, but. Oh, uh, I'm sure it is. I would like to know, and I, I'm pretty sure that I can intuit the answer to this, but I would like to ask you anyway, Judy Gold, are you a feminist? 100%. 1,000%. And I am becoming like a really, it, it's so funny because I have two white male sons straight and I have, you know, thank God brought up nice guys who know that women are capable of doing everything. You know, they're great boyfriends. I asked their, their girlfriends if they're different, you know, um, uh-huh. One of them said, oh, my God, he doesn't stop talking about his feelings. It's so annoying. I'm like, well, too bad. (laughs) But, uh, you know, as I get older and I, you know, you fight and fight and fight. And you see this misogynist become president of the, like, it has hardened me beyond, you know, my wildest dreams. I can't believe that he could say what he said, that he could pay off porn stars, that he can cheat on it, that he has paid for God knows how many abortions. Oh yeah. You know, and, and it's okay. I mean, who the fuck it's made me, it's really, I just, you know, as you get older, because all right, when he, when they were running for president, I I heard young women who consider themselves feminists saying, "Oh, you know what? I'm not going to vote for Hillary because there's going to be a woman president oh, in my time, crazy. huh? Yeah, <sighs> there's going to be a woman president in my lifetime. Why do I? Ha- why does it have to be her?" And I was like, "You're fucking 19 years old. Like you haven't lived as a woman in this world." You don't know that that's just not true. You know, the fact that it takes an almost 80 year old guy to bring a woman as his vice president to say, here, I'll do it. I'll, you know, this will be my last thing before I die is I will bring a woman on the ticket and hopefully she will become president. I mean, the fact that it takes an old white guy to do that, it is fucking sad. Yeah, I agree. And I also want to know, has your career in comedy influenced your feminism at all? Seeing what you Oh, you know what? That's such a good question. I think that uh, probably because I have come up against so much shit and so much passive aggressive, you know, mm-hmm. um, when I was, when I became a headliner and I would... First of all, when I first started doing stand-up and I was just booking myself, I didn't have an agent, I would call clubs and say, listen, uh, you know, I've been on this and I'm doing this and uh, I'd love to work there. And they would say things like, oh, we had a woman here like three months ago and she didn't do well. So 
We're not. <laughs> Since we're all exactly the same. Okay. Yeah. Women are a monolith. Right. And, um, and then when I would go on the road and I would club bookers often would try to screw me, would put some, someone on before me that would make it harder for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and also in the South, I did a gig in, uh, where the hell was it? Um, Georgia. And this guy, what I think I write about in the book, this guy went on stage. He talked about, um, the size of his shits. Uh, uh, he and his brother compared their shit sizes. And then it was John Wayne Bobbitt had his dick cut off. And he was talking about like the policeman not wanting to pick up the dick, the, the policeman who found the dick. And the, and I got on stage headlining and I did my opening act. Like I'm not a transvestite. Everyone thinks I am. The other day I went to the gym, this naked woman, you know, I walk in the ladies locker room a naked woman hides behind her locker. She said, Oh my God, I thought you were a man. So I whipped it out. I showed her my penis, right? They turned on me. Because you said penis. Because I said penis. And I said, what? That finally, the, like the last show, I said, what? Are you fucking kidding me? He could talk about the size of his shits and his, and a, finding a dick in the ground. You know, it's the double standard. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you take, you ask me about feminism is feminism, you know, I think that some female comics, newer ones, think that, okay, being a feminist a comedian is talking like a guy. Is is, And it's not. It's not talking like a guy. It's not talking about what they talk about. It's talking about what you talk about, and it's enough. It's equal. You know, that's what it is. And I think... Some people confuse, like, I'm going to be a shock person. I'm going to talk about anal and I'm going to talk about that and this and that um, for shock value. Uh, unless it's really something that you, you know, you want to talk about in your act. But it, it's really that whatever we talk about is as valid, as important as whatever a fucking guy comic talks about. Yeah. Amen, Judy Gold. <laughs> Tell me, what are your hopes and your dreams and your plans for the rest of 2020 when this- Oh my God, what is going to happen? Is so crazy. First of all, hope, dream that that motherfucker is out. Oh my God, Voted please. out or disappears somehow. Um, And I want them all gone. I want them all voted out. Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, all his fucking Ted Cruz. Like, fuck you. I, uh. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd I'd love, (laughs) I'd love for a lot of people to buy my book. That's the other. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Everyone should. It's so funny. And it's also really important read for this moment in, in time, for sure. The last question is one that I ask all of our guests. And that question is what you watching. And when I say what you watching, it is a broad question. I want to know about books, movies, television, podcasts, music, music videos. If you are consuming it pop culturally, we want to know because it's probably very cool. Judy Gold, what you watching? 
Well, I, um, let's see. I, I have been watching Ozark. Um, uh-huh. just started. I'm a little late to that game. Um, uh, I just watched the, uh, Roy Cohen documentary, which was amazing. Mm. I, um, am reading Uneducated, the book Uneducated. I, That's, is that Tracy McMillan Cotton? Yeah. Uh, wait, it's, um, oh, no, 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 no. A different book. no, it's Educated, Educated, I'm reading. Oh, God, why do I call it Uneducated? Um, I have been practicing the piano a lot, which is great. Cool. Um, I, what else have I been doing? Um, I've been reading a lot of plays lately. Mm. Uh, Any specific plays? Uh, we just, I just read Night at the Iguana. Not, um, I did, what else? Uh, Sisters Rosenzweig. I've, I've been taking an acting class with my friends. And so we've been reading all these plays uh and they're it's i love it i mean it's it's a fast read but it's also you know it's such a great you know it's a story uh and the you know you're really thinking about the characters and stuff like that what else i do read you know i read the new york times i read the new yorker um i will clickbait i will get Mm. that is my fucking that is it's like, no, I don't want to know what they look like now. I don't want to know. And yet, <laughs> and yet I'm like, all right, just for a minute. Like, I really want to stop that shit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what else have we been watching? I mean, we did watch a lot of sh- shit over the um, quarantine. Uh, Atypical. Uh, oh, I heard that's good. Really good. Um, Little Fires Everywhere, loved. Uh, What's the other? Oh, Mrs. America. Mrs. America. Um, required feminist yes. viewing. Uh, what else? I, you know, I, I tend, which is bad. I watch a lot of news, and I have to, I, I have to kind of stop it because it is really just the same shit over and over again. But I have to watch Rachel. I have to. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's the best. She's so fucking smart. She has uncovered so much shit. She she's just incredible. She's he doesn't fuck with her. You know, he's one of the, she's one of the journalists he never fucks with. If I have to hear something so terrible, I'd rather hear it from Rachel. Right. Same. <laughs> Same. Thank you so much for oh being my on our God. show. I know you, you have to go, but I'm so thrilled and excited that I got a chance to talk you to know, you. You know, thank you for yeah. reading my book, too. A lot of people, I do things, and they haven't read anything in the book, and it's, you know, so I really appreciate it. It's really, it's it's quite a read. It's very entertaining, thank and it you. really made me stop and think and jot down notes. And oh, It's perfect you. for this, this time for us to be reading. Um, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. And we're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when I come back, I'm going to talk to Callie. Callie is going to talk to me. And we're going to ask each other what you watch it. Hey, podcast fans. Did you know that the best place to listen to your favorite shows ad free is Stitcher Premium? They've got Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine The Lost Trail, Bitch Sesh, The Fantasy Footballers, 
science rules with Bill Nye, and more, all without commercial interruptions. And we can hook you up with a sweet deal. To get one month free, go to stitcher.com slash premium and use promo code POPTARTS. That's stitcher.com slash premium, promo code POPTARTS. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. (laughs) Scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like smart. Ten. I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Callie, what you watching? I have so much to say about the Babysitter's Club. Tell me. This is totally like I'm too old for the Babysitter's Club. Oh so God. tell me oh everything. Oh, my God. So about. it was either going to be great or total trash, right? I love Riverdale. You know I love my teen shows. This is yeah. even younger skewed. So this is like middle school. So I didn't really have much. Uh, I didn't expect much going in. I was floored. Floored. Floored, I tell you. So Babysitter's Club is on Netflix. Is that right? Yeah. And it's based on the book series from the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And um, from like the early nineties. And so the very first scene, very first words is Christy. Who's like the main protagonist. Every book was about a different one of the babysitters and they would rotate the narrator. But the main protagonist is always Christy because she started the club and Christy is walking um, out of class and it, her first words are all men are created equal if he was such a genius he would have said all people that was her talking about her teacher and like (laughs) the very first scene and i was like yes and then later that teacher because she didn't raise her hand to complain 
made her write an article or an essay on decorum. And she was talking to her mom, who's played by Alicia Silverstone. Nice. Um, she's Christy's mom. And then um, Christy is supposed to write this essay on decorum. And she's like, they would never ask a boy to write that essay. And her mom was like, you're right. I loved all this uh, low-key stuff. But then, all right, I don't know how familiar you are with the characters. But I was always a clock. I'm not at all. So Christy is like the kind of straight lace tomboyish girl that likes sports mm-hmm. is what you would call it. <laughs> and Claudia is the one I identified with. And that was the crazy dressing um, artist one. She loved to hide weird candy in her room because her parents were very strict about her food. And she would always come up if with that's the case that I'm the Claudia. Also. <laughs> but she would find really crazy ways to hide it and, she was very into art and always wore like crazy outfits. And in one episode, she's doing this. Um, uh, she has a bunch of art that is paintings of candy, like blown up giant candy. And I totally redid that those candy paintings as part of a book report back when I was in like, middle school. Amazing. I know. I was like, I totally remember this episode. But the best best part of the whole thing was um you know each person gets a different episode and marianne um is one of the characters and she is babysitting for a trans child and um it's a trans girl and has to take her to the hospital for a fever mm-hmm. and the doctors just keep misgendering the child over and over again mm-hmm. um And then she says, you're making her feel insignificant and humiliated. And then that's not going to help her feel safe, good or calm. Please recognize who her for who she is, which I thought was amazing. I totally cried during that episode. And the character that played Bailey, the trans child in the show is actually a trans girl who's nine years old. Nice. Yeah. So they actually casted a I was so impressed by that. There was, there's a lot. It was like the feel good show I needed right now. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, have you seen New Yorker Presents on Amazon? No. Oh my God, you would love it. It's basically, it's the New Yorker and they they break each episode up into like a very short interview with somebody. And then there's like something about a building and then there's a cartoon and then there's like a short film. That sounds great. It's awesome. And there was one episode that was about Tom of Finland. You know that illustrator? Oh, I love Tom of Finland. And he would do like very erotic uh, gay men drawings and they were all ripped. That sounds hot. And John Waters is a guest on it. And obviously he has a lot of thoughts on Tom Tom of Finland. It was awesome. Obviously. (laughs) It was, the show was great. It's like so many little nuggets. And then, of course, I I watched Mucho Mucho Amor. (gasps) Mucho Mucho Amor. Oh, my God. Whoa. So you were the one that talked about that first. I think you and Lori. Yes, I love Walter Mercado so much, who is the subject of Mucho Mucho Amor. I remember first seeing him like when he had his own like psychic friends hotline and then i got back into walter mercado when i began cohabitating with our producer luscious logan because he is puerto rican 
and Walter Mercado is like a big fucking deal in Puerto Rico. It was amazing. Oh my god, when Lin Manuel comes in and just fanboys the fuck out. Yeah. It was so cute. He was like crying. Oh yeah. And then there I so mean So there is there's a documentary called Mucho Mucho Amor about Walter Mercado on Netflix and everyone should watch it immediately. Oh, right? uh, the capes are amazing. The just like the cape closet, all the fashion, all the rings. And then at the end, I was so, like, I, I cried when he said, and he's talking about himself in the third person. He said, he used to be a star, but now Walter is a constellation. <gasps> he's a constellation. Oh, my God. He's amazing. He just died last year, and but his his uh, influence will be felt for generations. Apparently, the millennials are a huge reason that he's back. I found that fascinating. Me too. Anyway, that's what I've been watching. And what have you been watching? Well, Callie, I think you may recall that as soon as New York reopened for business, I embarked on a journey of dental work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've had no fewer than four dentist appointments um, since New York City reopened for business. And during around a lot of those, I was not able to eat any solid food. Fuck so. That. I started obsessively watching food shows. Ooh, I <laughs> feel that. Yes. I'm still watching them even though I can eat now and it's spurring me. You know when to- I love to watch food shows is when I'm really hungry late at night and we don't have a lot of groceries <laughs> and I'll just like binge them and then make insane lists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the craziest exactly. grocery list. And then I'm like, the more, that's impractical. The more hungry I am, the more likely I am to binge watch a food show. And, uh, I, I watched a bunch of them. I binge watched all of the latest season of Top Chef All-Stars season 17 on Bravo. Um, I developed a massive girl crush on one of the chef testants. Her name is Melissa King. She's a Chinese-American chef from San Francisco. She's basically the James Dean of cooking competitions. Ooh, and I, I love, I love her so much. I was just, um, I like posted a tribute to her on my Instagram page. Like I, I got pretty deep into my melissa king obsession during that show um and then when that was over i wasn't ready for it to be over so i watched all of padma lakshmi's new hulu show taste the nation padma lakshmi is the host of top chef she has her own show on hulu called taste the nation i saw the first episode of that it was really good i love it i've seen every episode she visits immigrant communities all over america as well as um one indigenous community out west and she uses their food to tell the story of their cultural journey in america the indigenous episode was my favorite one it made me want to start planning a decolonized thanksgiving this year that has native american foods when i finished padma lakshmi's taste of the nation i it, the show totally reminded me of Anthony Bourdain, R.I.P. And I had been avoiding the final season of Anthony Bourdain's Same. show, Parts Unknown, on CNN, just because he he died by suicide while he was filming that last season. And so I just like couldn't face it. It's too sad. But after I, after all of running through all of Taste the Nation, I needed more. So I decided it was time to Does go back to sad? Anthony Bourdain's show. What? 
Does he seem sad or totally professional game no, face? That's on? the thing that is so weird. Like he seems great. He seems like he's living his best life. But you he know, never... people know how to do that. When the camera turns on, they switch. Absolutely. Yeah. My favorite episode is when Anthony Bourdain is hanging out with Barack Obama in Hanoi, Vietnam. It's so special. And finally, like I I haven't gone grocery shopping in a really long time and I started watching Chopped. On Hulu, there's a ton of episodes of Chopped on Hulu. Nothing will make you want to go grocery shopping more than food shows, dude. Yeah. And the concept of Chopped is that you have a basket of four kind of weird ingredients. Yes. You you have to make something with all of those ingredients. And each round, it starts off with four chefs, and then they cut to three, and then two, and then only one is remaining. And in each round, they have to cook four ingredients. Oh, no. Does this mean that you guys made something weird last night? (laughs) It was good. Well, I thought it was good. Luscious Logan would not eat it. But I was I was playing chopped at home and I thought I did a great job. My basket ingredients were my basket ingredients were chickpeas, lemon, garlic, and polenta. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds delicious. It was lemon garlic chickpea polenta people and it was good. And then I played again this morning because I knew that I was gonna want to eat right after I recorded this podcast and my basket ingredients were tempeh, red wine vinegar, quinoa, and cashews. Ooh, I'm not mad about that either. My basket tonight is shrimp, um, a dry rub seasoning, lemons, and pasta. That sounds great. And the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. Yes. Which has arrived and it's great. We, I cannot stress this enough. We need everyone's help to keep Bust alive. Bust is a feminist institution. We are fighting like hell to stay around people. And if you love Bust like we love Bust and you want it to stay around, one of the ways that you can support us is by subscribing to this podcast on patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast the way it works is you go on and there's different patronage levels from one dollar a month five dollars a month fifteen dollars a month up to twenty five dollars a month that's the ceiling and on each of those levels you get all kinds of goodies and gifts from Callie and I you can get um show notes where we have recorded every single thing that everybody has been watching on all 87 episodes Um, If you're wondering what to watch, you can just pop in onto those members only pages anytime and be like, oh, yeah, that's what Judy Gold was watching. Oh, yeah, that's what Janine Garofalo was watching. Um, And then watch those things. We have ad free episodes. We have care packages. We have um, Zoom chats with Callie and I where you can just shoot the shit with us. We have so many fun things to give away if you want to be our patron. Just check us out at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast and help us keep Bust alive. And finally, I would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. We caliente, Logan. And of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. You cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? Please don't. 
But you can email both of us. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. CallieW at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash pop charts. Finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That's where the charts are. The charts that determine if you're number one like a rocket. And we want to be on those charts. So <laughs> if you could rate and review us on there, we would really super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mwah! Oh, Callie girl, we did it. We did it again. And you, you know what? You can call me every day. I would love to call you every day. You're going to you're going to feel sorry that you said that. I'm going to start calling you mommy. Okay, that's fine.